we've entered the Anthropocene, an epoch shaped by human activity. With science and technology, we have accomplished incredible things, but also caused undeniable damage to the planet's environment. It's becoming more and more crucial to understand how our system of knowledge shapes the world around us. And to move forward, we have to look back. More than a million years ago, our hominid forefathers set out on a long journey that would lead them out of Africa for the first time. Scholars have long held that this migration began when climate change triggered the expansion of East African savanna into the southern Levant, and that Homo erectus trailed after the familiar habitat. More recent findings, though, suggest that they didn't passively follow this trail. Settling and sometimes thriving in woodlands and other biomes as much as grassland along the way. As they wandered, they ate whatever they could get their hands on fruits, vegetables, roots hidden in the dirt. Upon encountering lakes and other fresh water, they sought out fish, turtles, and even small crocodiles. All of those they could catch on their own, though. With bigger prey like boars, elephants, and hippos, they stood no chance. They had to work together. The hunting parties locked eyes to exchange signals, perhaps used simple hand gestures preparing for their ambush. It was not long before these rudimentary systems of communication used again and again until they became a road turned into a sort of language. Clumsy vocalizations over time became words. Humans developed speech. This invention threw humanity into a whole new realm of possibilities. Groups could now discuss division of labor and get thorough feedback on which individuals were trustworthy. They could share and accumulate knowledge, improving their standing over generations. Human society was never to be the same. Far from being the first major transition that brought us to our current state of affairs, the development of human language is nonetheless an intuitive offset from which to discuss the raise and spread of knowledge that eventually led us to the Anthropocene. To explore this topic, we sat down with somebody that has a deep understanding of the subject. I'm Stephen Levinson. I'm uh, retired, actually, from uh, Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics in the Netherlands. And um, I have a you know strange background in a way because I started as an archaeologist, became a social anthropologist, uh, and then uh, a linguist, and then finally a partial psychologist. Uh, and um, uh, and so I've I brought all those sort of disciplines to bear, I think, on, on the way I think. Welcome, Professor. So there is a central debate in the world of linguistics on the purpose of language where some like Noam Chomsky, with his asymmetry of the interfaces, for example, hold that language is mainly internal and better suited for cognition and thought, while others that it's fundamentally external for communication between individuals, and it probably arose from early cooperation between hominids. Where do you stand on this issue? Well, I think you can guess that I belong to the communication branch. <laughs> and, the, and the reason is that what kind of selection pressures would there be that would give you 
this internal uh, reorganization, if you like. Uh, well, you'd have to come up with a story. I can't do it because if I could, I, I might change camps. But, but it's much easier to come up with a, a story about why uh, communication, as you say, affords uh, cooperation. Humans, like apes, are um, what have been called fission-fusion social systems. That means that uh, they form coalitions uh, and, uh, polit- you know, people think about sort of political organization or just friends and, uh, and counter-friends. Um, and so you can see that this flexibility of the social system means that having an, a very delicate uh, communication system could be very important because it allows you to modulate these social relationships. And if you just actually think about how careful you are uh, with uh, your social relationships when talking to people about how not to offend them, you know, you know the topics that uh, you really shouldn't talk to your mother about, <laughs> and the music that uh, your boyfriend hates, or whatever. So, so uh, I think this very, very careful sort of modulation of uh, social relationship uh, would help to explain, I think, why we became to need such a complicated communication system. And to what extent does language have an effect on thought? This, of course, is a a huge topic. There are people, philosophers, for example, who hold that thought just is language. I mean, uh, and there could be sort of different versions of this, that there's a sort of internal language uh, and then uh, an external language is simply a sort of translation of this or a modulation of this uh, into some kind of local language, but we all have the same internal language, actually. <laughs> this goes back, actually, to medieval <laughs> theories about language. Uh, I think that's not all that plausible, <laughs> uh, partly because we're just an animal, and animals clearly have some kind of thought process. <laughs> uh, but it is clear that our conscious thoughts are quite largely in language. And I have to be cautious here. I mean... I think possibly if you looked at visual experts like artists, you know, they consciously examine their own uh, visual uh, imagery, as it were. But I I think that most of us, our conscious thoughts are largely in language. And and actually a lot of our conscious thoughts, if you think about James Joyce, since here we are in Trieste, the the kind of... uh, Mental rehearsal of uh, conversation actually forms quite a large part of our kind of running semi-conscious <laughs> thinking. So um, I think that, uh, that that's clear that a lot of our thought must be in language. And so then the question, so uh, uh, one way of inva- investigating this, of course, is to look at the effect of language difference uh, on thinking. This is, again, another a very controversial subject because I think partly for sort of political reasons. Uh, so S- Stephen Pinker, for example, yeah, wrote a famous book called The Language Instinct that um, he said something like, uh, um, you know, the idea that language would have an effect, a particular language that would have an effect on our thinking is, like, ridiculous. You know? However... I, I think it isn't ridiculous, and one of the reasons actually was pointed out by uh, George Miller, one of the founding fathers of cognitive science, uh, which is that we have this sort of short-term memory bottleneck, and in order to get around it, uh, we use language, and he pointed out that 
language sort of provides us with these ready-made tools uh, for getting over this short-term memory bottleneck. The point he made was that if you want to remember, um, let's suppose somebody gives you some five words to remember. You do this with this kind of internal memory, one, two, three, four, one, two, three, four. If you keep saying it, you can, <laughs> you can remember it. Uh, but uh, if you start to exceed the, uh, a small number of random digits, um, so the maximum you're likely to be able to remember is five plus or minus two or something like that. Uh, unless you're a trained uh, mnemonic uh, specialist. So his point was simply that languages provide you with a vocabulary that allows you to do kind of complex reasoning because you because these little pointers to long-term memory, which is what a word is in a way, you have a complex concept and the word just indexes it. Uh, and, um, and so by using the word, you can get across, get around this uh, short-term memory problem. So there already is one argument for um, the way in which a particular language, because that's providing you with your vocabulary, uh, and every language has a different vocabulary. So uh, you would end up with having an effect of a particular language on the way you think. So that would be one way, I think, to see um, the effects of uh, language on thought. In your work, you have also studied how the way different languages describe space can influence the way speakers think about it. What are your findings in this field? Yes, well, I, I'll, just, I'll just give you a little bit of autobiography here. So I was working uh, on an Aboriginal language in Australia, and um, a, a colleague uh, called John Haviland had earlier worked on this uh, language. He's actually written a nice grammar of it. It's only short grammar, but it's a very nice grammar. And... Uh, and he noted that these people um, were uh, used a lot of north, south, east, west words. Um, and so then I followed this up by just sort of uh, doing some experiments with them. And, um, and I just found that, uh, um, first of all, that they really didn't think in terms of left, right, front, back, because they don't have those words. So they don't, didn't seem to utilize an egocentric frame of reference. And this uh, was quite surprising to me, <laughs> as it uh, turned out to be surprising to psychologists. In fact, most, a lot of psychologists at the time just would not believe my story because it just went against this very long tradition in the West, which goes back to uh, Aristotle. Kant, in particular, was very uh, explicit about this, the sort of our primary sense or innate intuitions about space uh, came from our egocentric frame of frames of reference. So to find the peoples who, you know, uh, who just didn't apparently use these words and didn't, if you gave them an array on a table and turned them around, you know, they, they, things that we would think about as being identical on their other table because it was to my left. Um, they didn't think that those were identical. They thought the things that were north were identical. Uh, and there were very simple experiments you could do that would uh, that, that showed that, that these people really were thinking in a different way. It's a very simple example, I think, uh, uh, um, of the way in which a language can train you <laughs> Uh, to think in a particular way because the language provides you with particular words and then in order to use the word north-south and so on, you better know where north is 
right now I have no idea, for example. Uh, you know, that, that's that, to have that instant intuition uh, is something that um, is trained into you. So it's it's very obvious. I, I have uh, once nearly drove off the road into a, we weren't on a road, we were on the, just going through the bush, but into a kind of um, morass, you know, a, 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 a marsh, because the guy, you know, said, go north now, you know, quick. <laughs> Turn the wheel in the wrong direction. <laughs> couldn't think that fast. <laughs> so. On a personal note, me and my colleague Diego are both bilingual, and we were recently discussing the Sapir-Whorf hypothesis. For our listeners, this principle, also called the hypothesis of linguistic relativity, states that the cognitive development of human beings is influenced by the language that they speak. For example, Whorf held that the Inuit language has a wide range of words for snow, giving them a perception of snow that is much more nuanced than ours. We understand that this concept is outdated in this strong form, but it still seems to us that there is some truth to it. What do you think about this, Professor? Well, yes, I've been one of the people who tried to kind of resuscitate it. I mean, it was fairly, after Pinker, it was a little bit dead. <laughs> but uh, but I've been one of a number of people who tried to resuscitate it. And um, and the reason is, I think, as you say, I think it's partly true. Uh, how much it's true is the controversial point, I think. I investigated this in particular domains and other people have investigated in other domains. Um, Lira Boroditsky on time, John Lucy on number. Uh, that, by the way, number is one of those uh, extraordinary effects of language on, on thought. So the societies that uh, 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 have almost no numbers, in, in numerals, that is to say. So they, they have one, two, three, and many, or sometimes like that. And uh, the only psychological experiments have been done are actually on one language called Piranha, spoken in the Amazon. And it turns out that those people really do have restricted numeracy, you know. <laughs> um, and so that's actually interesting. It's just if you don't have that kind of, uh, it's not provided to you by your language, then uh, the chances of having um, a mathematical genius in, in the Amazon are restricted, <laughs> shall we say. More recently, we have adapted our language to the written form. How has this transition influenced the way we think and speak? Yeah, very interesting question. I have to say, I have not myself done any research on this. The reason for this is because linguists are trained to work on spoken language. They think about it as the prime thing. I think they're right. But uh, but um, on the other hand, it's... It's uh, anthropologists actually, like Jack Goody, uh, who was one of the early people to work on, or pushed the study of literacy. Uh, uh, he showed that it makes just a, a lot of difference. So, for example, you know, you might think that uh, if you take somehow oral performance, like a, like a um, politician giving a speech, uh, you could, you know, and then you would look in some village in like uh, the island I have worked on in many for many years out in the Pacific, where they don't have, they're not basically literate. Uh, and then you can see a, an elder giving a speech, and you could say, well, it looks, you know, identical. But what uh, Jack Goody pointed out is that, no, it's not identical. <laughs> because, in fact, the fact that we can, uh, that we're literate, 
gives us this kind of meta-cognitive angle on language, our ability to, um, to, even if we actually didn't write it down, we, we can sort of mentally rehearse this in a way that we simply couldn't if we didn't have uh, a background in literacy. So, so using this kind of, of, of reasoning, I think you can show that, um, uh, that the Homeric poems, even though they, um, they c- clearly were by origin a, a, a spoken form, by the time they were written down, there was already a literary kind of <laughs> effect on the way in which they're expressed and so on. So, yeah, I think it makes a complete difference uh, to uh, things. I'll give you another example, which is actually something that it sh- shows you the kind of demerits of being literate. When I was working in the, on this uh, Pacific island um, where people are essentially not literate, uh, I was very impressed by... Um, by their ability to remember things. So, uh, for example, they will learn a, um, a kind of light opera type uh, genre that they have, <laughs> um, uh, which involves uh, singing. And uh, they sing uh, all night long, so 12 hours long. Uh, and they learn about 50,000 words for this. I sort of calculate this. I recorded just... I recorded the whole thing actually, but I only transcribed a little bit. <laughs> but uh, but from this, you can you know calculate roughly uh, fifty thousand words. They learn this in ten rehearsals. Now, it's sung in uh, together, uh, so you could say, well, you know, by a group of maybe twenty uh, people. But any one of these people can be picked out to give a a, a, a repeat solo. So actually, you really have to know it. Uh, and children of as young as maybe six, seven, eight, um, can do this. And I, I know that I could not learn 50,000 words verbatim in 10 rehearsals just from listening. And then they, then, then they, of course, view my uh, failures to remember the words they just gave me yesterday. They can't believe. <laughs> I'm asking again. So, so I think there's an effect the other way too. Um, uh, just like our, you know, GPS uh, is ruining our sense of direction. So, uh, literacy has, a, has an effect on our memory too, because we rely, of course, on the fact that we can write it down. And is there an impact on the biology of our brains due to literacy? I'm sure there is. Um, uh, it depends a little bit about what you mean by biology, obviously. <laughs> but, uh, but, but we know that the brain is relatively plastic nowadays, and um, at least in parts. Um, and, uh, and it's clear that uh, from uh, brain imagery, uh, the works that's been done on literates and illiterates by a number of people, I have to say, um, exploiting the fact that there are certain populations where you can match two siblings and uh, who otherwise, you know, fairly had, had the same upbringing up to a certain point, and then one became literate and the other not. Example would be uh, in Portugal, um, rural families often had elder sister who was told, no, you've got to stay and look after the parents, and a younger sister who went and became a nun. So the younger sister became literate, and the older sister <laughs> never learned uh, to read and write. Uh, and then you can uh, look at the brains of these two people, and you can see that 
goodness me, yes, there's differences. So there's brain structural differences, and that's actually very fascinating. Um, and it uh, has to do with the necessity to take the information from both eyes and and route it to the left hemisphere on the one hand, and then um, the particular kind of uh, networks that are used reflect. Um, so, But the routing of the information, so the white matter circuits and the... Um, Gray matter volumes uh, uh, that are relevant begin to increase. So, so you can see that there are deaths. there's, uh, in that sense, a biological um, effect. Of course, uh, unless we're Lamarckians, we don't believe that there's a, a genetic effect. <laughs> Your talk here at the scientific meeting was about cognitive artifacts. It was very in depth, of course, but maybe you could give us just a brief summary of what they are and how they contributed to the evolution of human knowledge. Yes. So, uh, so, the, so in the talk, I basically um, I just gave, you know, the obvious examples of what a cognitive artifact is. So, uh, so uh, if you're thinking about a domain like number, it would be some kind of calculating machine or a, a slide rule it used to be, uh, probably too young to even know what a slide rule is but uh, <laughs> but uh, um, and then uh, if it was the domain of time it might be a clock um, or a calendar uh, or more likely your your calendar on your mobile phone uh, so these are all devices that uh, help you uh, think in one way or another and so the history of science is actually of course Uh, quite largely about these devices one way or another. So I think it was quite easy to convince uh, the, the audience that there were such things as cognitive artifacts. There wasn't a problem. But what, what is interesting to me is, um, is how they work, I think. I think that's really a fascinating uh, subject because it's not totally obvious, especially, as I said, look, if you write something down, you're more likely to forget it, actually. So, so you, there's a sort of trade-off here. So exactly why we get this uh, enormous cognitive advantage out of uh, um, sometimes quite simple tools. I tried to, to persuade the audience that uh, the cognitive artifacts are all around us. Um, uh, they, I think it's, it's, it's quite hard to sort of see that because we, we have an, an environment that is full of them. I mean, the simplest kind of things, like there's a bottle on the table here. Uh, if it, if it had, was an oil bottle, it would be opaque, except there'd be a little window where you could see how much of the oil was left. <laughs> this is a cognitive one, it tells you. It's a, it, uh, it could as well be a meter, if you like. Um, like on a meter you have in your car that tells you how much petrol you still have left. So uh, they're all around us, these things, these uh, little devices that we've devised to um, give us information. Yes, yeah, so the thing that interests me, as I said, is the kind of mechanisms, and I tried to outline uh, all the ways in which Uh, this helps these these devices help one of the reasons one of the things they do is 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 solve this short-term memory bottleneck because you can write it down or the by by um, somehow recording where you are in this long division problem it might be on an abacus or something uh, um, but however you do it you know there there's the externalization of it allows you to um, get over this short-term memory bottleneck because you've got a, a midway in your calculation you've got a way to hold the result 
Uh, and there are lots of other ways in which this kind of, I, I used the analogy of a transducer. It's as if you take your thought and you put it into a different medium and through that change of medium, you get uh, some kind of advantage. And uh, so uh, uh, one thing would be take some continuous variable and turn it into a graph. You know, Now suddenly, wait a minute, you've got somehow insight into it you simply didn't have. And uh, so this, so I, so I think that lots of, and I went through a lot of little mechanisms that, that uh, seem to uh, be involved. Um, so I think that's an interesting perspective on the, the, the sorts of devices that historians of science sort of take for granted, I think. Um, and, uh, and, and it also allows one to think about the very simplest forms of those and then to think back to human evolution and to think, actually, what was their role in human evolution? And, uh, and, um, and, and I think that there one could argue that actually that's part of the apparatus that we use to sort of gradually ratchet up uh, the kind of complex cultures that we, that we now have. So that was the argument. So does language qualify as a cognitive artifact? Um, well, the, my characterization was this, that, you know, there's an external device of some kind, and we push our thoughts through this external device, uh, and, uh, and we get some advantage from doing that. We re-internalize them. Uh, and uh, um, now uh, think about uh, language. So it is an external device. In the sense that you had to learn it from your mum, <laughs> uh, so the, it didn't, you know, it didn't because you weren't born with it. Uh, so it's an external device. It's culturally shaped, like most of these other devices are. And as you all know, I think if you trying to find out what you really think it's very helpful to write it out <laughs> so there is a way in which this kind of externalization helps you and speaking is again a way of finding out what you think too uh, and uh, and that's i think something that we all we all do and i also mentioned uh, gesture because uh, gesture is part of our communication system and it goes along with speech and often Uh, helps us think out what we want to say too, as we're saying it. So they're very complicated and interesting, um, uh, you know, ideas about actually how speech generation works. I, I have a colleague, Pim Leifeld, who was one of the sort of first people to actually do very detailed experimentation on the whole process of encoding. How do you get a thought into language? Very complicated uh, and involved process. Um, But the point I was making really is just that there's this culturally shaped exterior, so it looks just like a cognitive artifact, it happens to be abstract, but uh, um, it's an abstract cognitive artifact. Thank you for speaking with us, Professor Levinson. Absolutely. So the emergence of language fundamentally changed the position of humans. Our capacity for cooperation dramatically improved. We could talk and work out plans, build towards common goals, dividing up the labor, coordinate among groups with different skill sets. We started to accumulate knowledge and in time to intervene in our environment. But this would only be the beginning. This has been The Evolution of Knowledge, a podcast created by Sissa Ilas and the Max Planck Institute for the History of Science, written and produced by Diego Vizintin, Sofia Gru and Lorenzo Carta. Music by Gregor Kendall. Next time, we'll talk about paper tools. 
It was a lingua franca of chemistry, independent of their different natural languages. So they can, could really communicate by showing each other their formulas and by showing each other also other results of experiments, independent of uh, French language or Latin language. Mm -hmm. 